0: This discussion will be regarding Doctrine and Covenants section 19. So I'm going to read the heading first. Revelation given through Joseph Smith at Manchester, New York, likely in the summer of 1829. In his history, the prophet introduces it as a commandment of God and not of man to Martin Harris given by him who is eternal. So let me just read a few um, historical context quotes here. During the summer of 1829, after the translation of the Book of Mormon was completed, Egbert B. Grandin, owner of the Wayne County Sentinel in Palmyra, New York, agreed to print 5,000 copies of the book for $3,000. On the 25th of August, 1829, Martin Harris, who had repented of his previous sins and had subsequently received a vision of the angel and the plates to become one of the three witnesses of the Book of Mormon, put up 240 acres of his Palmyra farm as collateral to guarantee payment of the $3,000. If the books sold, the proceeds would redeem Martin's note, but if they did not sell, portions of Martin's acreage would be sold at public auction until the debt to Grandin was satisfied. Opposition to the Book of Mormon was intense even before its publication. During the winter of 1830, a man named Abner Cole had somehow gained access to the printer's copy of the manuscript, and attempted to publish parts of it as installments in his newspaper, The Reflector, under the pseudonym of O. Dogberry. The first installment was printed on the 2nd of January, 1830. The Reflector was also printed in Palmyra on E.B. Grandin's Press. Cole apparently hoped to profit from his literary theft, and at the same time preempt sales of the real Book of Mormon when it appeared, but Joseph was able to stop this infringement of copyright by threatening legal action. Then in March 1830, a large number of citizens in the Palmyra area held a mass meeting in opposition to the forthcoming book and mutually agreed to boycott it when released. These same citizens also applied pressure to Grandin, who, fearing the Smiths might not make good their debt if the boycott proved successful, stopped the printing. When Martin Harris learned of the planned boycott, being aware he would lose his farm if the book didn't sell, he went to Joseph in Manchester, New York, and demanded a revelation from the Lord. Joseph Knight, Sr. later gave this account of that meeting. He, Martin Harris, came to us, Joseph Smith, Jr. and Joseph Knight, Sr., and says, The books, Book of Mormon, will not sell, for nobody wants them. Joseph says, I think they will sell well, says he. I want a commandment, a revelation. Why, says Joseph, fulfill what you have got. But, says he, I must have a commandment. Joseph put him off, but he, but he insisted three or four times he must have a commandment. In the morning, the next day, he got up and said he must have a commandment to Joseph and went home. And along in the after part of the day, Joseph and Oliver received a commandment, which is in Book of, Doct- Book of Covenants, Doctrine and Covenants 19. After receiving Doctrine and Covenants 19, Joseph and Martin, whose home was in Palmyra, visited Grandin in Palmyra and reassured him that their debt would be paid one way or the other. Consequently, the printing of the Book of Mormon resumed and was finished in March of 1830. On February 5, 1831, the debt to the printer became due, obedient to the Lord's command that he had received in Section 19. On the 7th of April, 1831, Martin sold off 151 of the mortgaged acres at $20 per acre to satisfy the $3,000 debt owed E.B. Grandin. This amounted to a little over half of Martin's entire farm. D&C 19 is one of the most important revelations we have dealing with repentance, the nature of hell, and the atonement of Christ. As one whose own life had recently been marked with sins and failures, but who still desired to serve God, Martin Harris needed to understand the relationship between God's eternal judgments, individual repentance, and the atonement of Christ. Most of the churches in Joseph Smith's day taught that punishments of God last forever and that sinners will suffer endless burning in fire and brimstone. Martin had previously suffered the pain of losing the spirit, and now the, the Lord informed him that his only choices, like ours, were to repent of his sins or, in suffer, or to suffer judgment. The Lord clarified the doctrine of hell in section 19, however, by explaining that the condemned do not suffer forever, though the scriptures sometimes give that impression for the sake of increased effect. Verse 1. I am Alpha, the first letter, and Omega, the last letter, in in the Greek alphabet. Christ, the Lord, even, yea, even I am He, the beginning and the end, the Redeemer of the world. I, having accomplished and finished the will of Him whose I am, even the Father, concerning the and con- concerning me, having done this, that I might subdue all things unto myself, retaining all power, even to the destroying of Satan and his works at the end of the world, or end of the celestial world, and the last day. And the last great day of judgment, which I shall pass upon the inhabitants thereof, judging every man according to his works and the deeds which he hath done. The last great day of judgment, what is that? Reference is to the time that follows the millennium, a period of 1,000 years of righteousness. It is instructive in the context of this revelation to note that the scriptures do not speak of a final judgment in which all people of the earth are brought before God at one time to receive rewards and punishments. Rather, the Lord speaks of judgment that has a great last day in which he will banish Satan and his hosts into their own place. At that time, all of God's children who belong to this earth will have had judgment passed upon them. Statements such as those found in the Book of Mormon that the day cometh that all shall rise from the dead and stand before God and be judged according to their works do not intend to convey the idea that all will be judged on one final day of judgment any more than all will be resurrected the same day. The principle being taught is that there will be judgment for each individual's works and that there is a time at the end of the millennium when all will have received that judgment, and that's by Joseph Fielding McConkie. Verse 4, And surely every man must repent or suffer, for I, God, am endless. We can either repent and suffer according according, according to a broken heart and contrite spirit, or we can suffer as Christ suffered. One has not begun to repent until he has suffered intensely for his sins. We must remember that repentance is more than just saying, I am sorry. It is more than tears in one's eyes. It is more than half a dozen prayers. Repentance means suffering. If a person hasn't suffered, he hasn't repented. And that was by uh, Spencer W. Kimball. Verse 5, Wherefore I revoke not the judgments which I shall pass, but woes shall go forth, weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth, yea, to those who are found on my left hand. Nevertheless, it is not written that there shall be no end to this torment, but it is written endless torment. This does not refer to a duration of torment, but the quality or type of torment. Verse 7, again, it is written eternal damnation, wherefore it is more expressed than other scriptures, that it might work upon the hearts of the children of men uh, altogether, altogether for my name's glory." This phrase is found elsewhere in Scripture, only in Mark 3.29 and Doctrine and Covenants 29.44, where it is used concerning those who sin against the Holy Ghost and who will not repent, either in this life or the next. Interestingly, damned and damned are not two forms of the same word. Damned, D-A-M-N-E-D, comes from the Latin "damnare" to inflict injury or loss, while damned, D-A-M, comes from Old and Middle German, the hypothetical root being Dam damion, to hinder, damnation does not refer to stopping one's forward progress, as in damming, D-A-M-M-I-N-G, a river. Rather, in the Bible, it always translates from forms of the Greek, apole, which means destruction, or chrysis, judgment. Damnation is the condemnation received at judgment. Technically, eternal damnation, meaning eternal destruction or eternal condemnation, applies only to those who are cast into outer darkness after the resurrection and who die the second death. Perhaps the, terms, the term is intended by its ambiguity to have an effect on the rest of us. It easily catches our attention and affects our hearts. Uh, verse 8, Wherefore I will explain unto you this mystery, for it is meet the unto you to know even as mine apostles i speak unto you that are chosen in this thing even as one that you may enter into my rest for behold the mystery of godliness how great it is it for behold i am endless and the punishment which is given from my hand is endless punishment for endless is my name wherefore eternal punishment is god's punishment not only a duration of punishment but the quality of punishment endless punishment is god's punishment the, the punishment will be final and will be forever Wherefore, I command you to repent and keep the commandments which you have received by the hand of my servant Joseph Smith Jr. in my name, and it is by my almighty power that you have received them. Therefore, I command you to repent, repent lest I smite you by the rod of my mouth and by my wrath and by my anger and your sufferings be sore. How sore you know not, how exquisite you know not, yea, how hard to bear you know not. Those who do not repent will become sons of perdition. All who eventually repent will obtain a kingdom of glory." Verse 16. For behold, I, God, have suffered these things for all. Only a God can atone for the sins of another, referring to the atoning sacrifice of the Savior. Amulek, explain, Amulek explained that, that it must be an infinite and eternal sacrifice. Further, Christ was able to offer himself a sacrifice for sin, explained Lehi, because of his merits and mercy and grace. The Savior uniquely merited the ability to suffer for the sins of others because he was sinless, and justice, therefore, could not demand that he suffer punishment for sin. When he suffered for sin, it was not for his own sins. Rather, his suffering met the demands of justice for the sins of others. He was not constrained by law to suffer for the sins of others, but did sin, but did so out of his mercy and loving kindness to them. The concept of grace indicates that indicates aid that comes from a divine source. Therefore, Christ was uniquely qualified to offer grace through his, through the atoning sacrifice, because as a member of the Godhead, he condescended to become the only begotten Son of God in the flesh. His divine sonship as the only begotten Son of God enabled him to suffer more than man can suffer, except it be unto death. Continuing verse 16, that they might not suffer if they would repent. The condition is our repentance. Verse 17, but if they would not repent, they must suffer even as I. How long must suffering go on? The suffering referred to by the Savior is not a quantity of punishment meted out and experienced for a predetermined length of time. Individuals suffer as long as they remain in sin. When they repent, the atonement of Christ has claim upon them. Hence, the salvation of Jesus Christ was wrought out for all men, taught the prophet Joseph Smith, in order to triumph over the devil. For if it did not catch him in one place, it would in another, for he stood up as a Savior. All will suffer until they obey Christ himself. Therefore, the suffering continues until individuals repent and forsake their sins. There are those who have falsely supposed that Christ's suffering supplants suffering on the part of those who repent. This simply is not the case. There is no repentance without suffering. Teaching this principle to his son Corianton, Alma said, Now repentance could not come unto men except there was a punishment, which was which also was eternal as the life of the soul should be, affixed opposite to the plan of happiness, which was as eternal also as the law of the of, as the life of the soul. now, how could a man repent except he should sin? How could he sin if there was no law? How could there be a law save there was a punishment? Now there was a punishment affixed, and a just law given, which brought remorse of conscience unto man. What the present text means is that the repentant soul will not have to suffer even as the Savior suffered, but it does not mean that they will not have to suffer. Nor should it be supposed that, that that their suffering is confined to the natural consequences of their actions. In addition to those consequences, he or she must experience the anguish associated with true repentance. President Kimball said of personal suffering that it is a very important part of repentance. One has not begun to repent until he has suffered intensely for his sins. If a person hasn't suffered, he hasn't repented. He has got to go through a change in his system, whereby he suffers, and then forgiveness is a is a possibility. Again, President Kimball, quoted by uh, Joseph Feeling Smith, or Joseph McConkie, verse 18, which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain and to sh- to bleed at every pore. Merrill J. Bateman, "'For many years I have thought of the Savior's experience in the garden and on the cross as places where a large mass of sin was heaped upon him. Through the words of Alma, Abinadi, Isaiah, and other prophets, however, my view has been changed. Instead of an impersonal mass of sin, there was a long line of people. As Jesus felt our infirmities, bore our griefs, carried our sorrows, and was bruised for our iniquities.'" The atonement was was an intimate personal experience in which Jesus came to know how to help each of us. The Pearl of Great Price teaches that Moses was shown all the inhabitants of the earth, which were numberless as the sand upon the seashore. If Moses beheld every soul, then it seems reasonable that the creator of the universe has the power to become intimately acquainted with each of us. He learned about your weaknesses and mine. He experienced your pains and sufferings. He experienced mine. I testify that he knows us. He understands the way in which we deal with temptation. He knows our weaknesses, but more than that, more than just knowing us, he knows how to help us if we come to him in faith. Joseph Fielding Smith said, we get into the habit of thinking, I suppose, that this great suffering was when he was caught, when he was nailed to the cross by his hands and his feet and was left there to suffer until he died. As excruciating as this pain was, that was not the greatest suffering that he had to undergo. For in some way, which I cannot understand, but which I accept on faith, and which you must accept on faith, he carried on his back the burdens of the sins of the whole world. It is hard enough for me to carry my own sins. How is it with you? And yet he had to carry the sins of the whole world, as our Saviour and the Redeemer of a fallen world. And so great was his suffering before he went to the cross. He was. we are informed that blood oozed from the pores of his body, and he prayed to his Father that the cup might pass if possible, but not being possible, he was willing to drink. Now remember that the atonement doesn't just cover, cover those of us on this earth, but all of God's creations uh, throughout the universe. Continuing the verse, "...and to suffer both body and spirit, and would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink." This revelation is unique among all scriptures, In its intimacy, Jesus Christ speaks of his suffering and the feeling attending it. No one else shared this experience with him. Elder McConkie explained, We do not know, we cannot tell. No mortal mind can conceive the full import of what Christ did in Gethsemane. We know he sweat great gouts of blood from every pore as he drained the dregs of that bitter cup his father had given him. We know he suffered, both body and spirit, more than it is possible for man to suffer, except it be unto death. We know that in some way, incomprehensible to us, his suffering— satisfied the demands of justice, ransomed penitent souls from the pains and penalties of sin, and made mercy available to those who believe in his holy name. We know that he lay prostrate upon the ground as the pains and agonies of an infinite burden caused him to tremble and would that he might not drink the bitter cup. We know that an angel came from the courts of glory to strengthen him in his ordeal, and we suppose it was mighty Michael who foremost fell that mortal man might be As near as we can judge, these infinite agonies, this suffering beyond compare, continued for some three or four hours verse 19 nevertheless glory be to the father and i partook and finished my preparations unto the children of men the way is prepared for all to come back into the presence of god through christ's atoning for the transgression of adam and eve in the garden of eden and through his resurrection from the dead further the atonement and the resurrection completed the savior's preparation of the way in which we can be redeemed from spiritual death caused by our own sins and return to our father again to dwell with him throughout eternity and that was by Joseph of McConkie. verse twenty. Wherefore I command you again to repent, lest I humble you with my almighty power, and that you confess your sins, lest you suffer these punishments of which I have spoken, of which in the smallest, in the smallest, yea, even in the least degree, you have tasted at the time I withdrew my spirit. And that's when he's he's talking about when the hundred and sixteen pages were lost. And I command you that you preach not but repentance and show not these things unto the world until it is wisdom in me. In other words, just preach the basics of faith, repentance, baptism, and so on. For, this, for they cannot bear meat now, but milk they must receive. Wherefore, they must not know these things, lest they perish. Learn of me and listen to my words. Walk in the meekness of my spirit, and you shall have peace in me. I am Jesus Christ, I came by the will of the Father, and I do his will. And again I command thee that thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor seek thy neighbor's life. And again I command thee that thou shalt not covet thine own property, but impart it freely to the printing of the Book of Mormon, which contains the truth and the word of God, which is my word to the Gentile that soon it may go to the Jew, of whom the Lamanites are a remnant, that they may believe the gospel, and look not for a Messiah to come, who has already come. And again I command thee that thou shalt pray vocally, as well as in thy heart, yea, before the world, as well as in secret, in public, as well as in private. And thou shalt declare glad tidings, yea, publish it upon the mountains, and upon every high place, and among every people, that thou shalt be permitted to see." And thou shalt do it with all humility, trusting in me, reviling not against revilers. And of tenets thou shalt not talk, but thou shalt declare repentance and faith on the Savior, and remission of sins by baptism and by fire, yea, even the Holy Ghost. Behold, this is a great and the last commandment which I shall give unto you concerning this matter, for this shall suffice for for thy daily walk, even unto the end of thy life." Martin Harris had demanded a commandment or revelation on this matter, and here he gets it the last revelation that will be addressed directly and exclusively to him in the Doctrine and Covenants. Martin is commanded to restrict himself for the rest of his life to declaring the basic message of the restoration and to leave theology alone. As Joseph Smith taught, after all that has been said, the prophet's most important duty is to preach the gospel. As a special witness to the Book of Mormon, Martin's duty to bear witness of the restoration was even greater than that of some others. If he ignored the Lord's counsel in these matters, he would both lose his property and suffer misery. In the matter of Martin's immediate concern, the possible loss of his property, the Lord commanded him to sell what he did not need for the support of his family and to pay the debt to the printer. This was a great sacrifice to ask of him, considering it was not Martin's understanding at the beginning of the project that the publishing costs would come out of his pocket. Originally, payment of the printing costs was supposed to come from the proceeds of book sales, and Martin's property merely guaranteed payment should the book not sell as expected. Eventually, the book did sell well, as Joseph Smith is quoted as saying in the account of Joseph Knight Sr., but not in time to save Martin's farm. It should be noted that Martin later claimed he got all his money back and more. It is a tribute to Martin that he did as the Lord commanded him and settled the entire debt out of his own pocket. Verse 33, And misery thou shalt receive if thou wilt slight these counsels, yea, even the destruction of thy of of thyself and property. Impart a portion of thy property, yea, even part of thy lands, and all save thy support, or the support of thy family. Pay the debt thou hast contracted with the printer, release thyself from bondage. Leave thy house and home, except when thou shalt desire to see thy family, and speak freely to all, yea, preach, exhort, declare the truth, even with a loud voice, with a sound of rejoicing, crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Lord God. Hosanna is a compound Hebrew word, uh, a hephil a hill imperative, meaning save now, it is often associated with the arrival of the Lord at his temple, whether Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem to visit the temple there or the arrival of the divine presence of, at a temple dedication in the modern church. We might also shout Hosanna whenever the word spirit or presence of God is manifested among us. Verse 38: Pray always, and I will pour out my Spirit upon you, and great shall be your blessing. Yea, even more than if you should obtain treasures of earth and corruptibleness to the extent thereof. Behold, canst thou read this without rejoicing and lifting up thy heart for gladness? Or canst thou run about longer as a blind guide? or canst thou be humble and meek and conduct thyself wisely before me? Yea, come unto me, thy thy Savior. Amen. I bear testimony that these things are true, uh, and that these words to Martin Harris uh, are also words to us, that uh, we need to repent and to rely upon the Savior's atoning sacrifice on our behalf. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Bye.